Welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I'm film critic and horror author Gretchen Felker-Martin, and with me as always is my illustrious co-host. Shanti Collins, uh, television critic and author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse. You know, Sean, I just busted out. I'm sorry, this is a complete non sequitur. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. (laughs) But I just busted out my copy of Pain Don't Hurt to go back and reread some of my favorites. And I wound up reading like a hundred of them in a row. (laughs) And I I don't know if I've ever laughed as hard at a book as I did rereading the segment that you read, uh, the segment that you wrote as read the auto repair shop owner. (laughs) (laughs) That's life. Who can explain it? unbelievable torrent of half connected thoughts that sketch out this weird little life. (laughs) Anyway, it's a great book. Thank you very much. Yes. I do have that power to, to tap into the brainwaves of character actors playing uh, one of several auto parts or auto dealers in, in a given action film starring Patrick Swayze. It's my, I believe there are three separate, Characters that fit that bill on that movie. There's actually four. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's by the way available at mzsworldstore.com. That is the only place you can get it, and I recommend that you do. And just check out the rest of Matt Zoller Sites' stuff that he sells on that website. It's a pretty incredible web store. Yeah, he's doing really interesting work, actually. And this is—I don't receive any any royalties or anything for this contribution, so it's it's. I don't think it's biased. He's putting out a really, really incredible book called A Lie Agreed Upon, which is about the making of Deadwood. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's so rich. It's so full of weird behind the scenes ephemera and just sort of a look into David Milch as a creator. And I think both because he's had a lot of career difficulties and also now he is going through the loss of his higher cognitive faculties due to illness. It's a career that never quite got the recognition that it should have. Yeah. So it's, it's a really, it's a really beautiful tribute. And it's a passion project on Matt's part too. I mean, 100%, you know, he's published books on the Sopranos and Mad Men. So he can do like, you know, sort of mass market books on canonical dramas, but this seems like a, a separate beast and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. I've been, I've joined the Kickstarter for it, you know, years ago, it's been years and it's literally been years in the making. So yeah, I'm very excited for it. Uh, this episode has not quite been years in the making. Although no. it's been a, it's been a while since we've recorded. We had it's the, been a couple of months. I had a book come out. Yep. I had a million appearances to do. I had another book to finish. Um, it's entirely my fault. Sean would, just as reliably as the rain they <laughs> are we recording tonight Gretchen I would say no Sean because I forgot a thousand things and didn't bother to check my calendar or even remember that we were doing this so thank you for your fucking saint-like patience with me <laughs> it's my pleasure it's my pleasure and I'm glad we finally got to do this episode because this is a weird one and it may surprise you to learn that this is an episode that I had in mind when we first started the podcast, it was really kind of one of the germinative 
ideas behind the podcast in the first place. And so today we're going to be talking about Season 8, Episode 22 of Little House on the Prairie. Uh, an episode called He Was Only 12, Part 2. It's the second half of a two-parter. We'll get into that a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. The two parts are very different. Very, uh, very different. Yeah. And it's written and directed by the star of the show, Michael Landon, who would leave after this episode. The ninth season was kind of a spinoff, basically, under the same name that he would still write and direct for, but he didn't act in it. And then after that season... They canceled the show. They did like a trio of TV movies and then it was over. So for all intents and purposes, though, this was how Michael Landon envisioned the end of his tenure on the show, which was a staple of the television landscape for many years. Absolutely. And- I, I grew up with reruns, but uh, mm-hmm. my mother grew up on it and loved it. And reruns is how I discovered this because this was going back years ago now. I was flipping through the channels and just just kind of got stuck on a channel and I wasn't actually watching. And I looked up and it was Little House on the Prairie. And it was the more that I looked up and watched what was going on, the weirder and weirder it seemed to me. Now, the, the basic plot of this story is that in the first part of the two-parter, which is effectively functions like a Red Dead Redemption 2 mission, Charles Ingalls' that's the character played by Michael Landon, his adopted son, James, who is played by Jason Bateman of all people, a young Jason Bateman. Yep. Um, He gets shot. uh, He's like an innocent bystander in a bank robbery and he gets shot and he winds up in in sort of a vegetative state. And in the first half of the, in the first half, um, Michael Landon's character seeks out and hunts down the, the people responsible in the second part, which is the part that I think we'll be focusing on, which is the finale, he becomes obsessed with the idea that God will somehow heal his son. And the doctor tells him, no, it's not possible. His wife is extremely distraught. Other children who are increasingly horrified with the monomania with which Charles approaches this situation and his sort of fanatical belief that God will somehow set it right, even though that's impossible. Right, his, um, his belief that God is is speaking to him and has promised him this. Yeah, the pastor intervenes, the doctor, the children, his wife, and he eventually just sort of goes on almost like a walkabout. He takes James into the wilderness. He builds like a an altar out of stone. And by altar, it's like kind of this like, It's not like a church altar. It's like this big sort of cairn of rocks with a cross mounted on top. and Right, almost like more like an obelisk. Yeah, and I'm sitting there sort of watching it and just being like, this is wild. Like, it's telling the story, you know, this this very kind of potentially corny 1970s, early 80s television drama story, which was a shit period for drama on television, believe me. God awful. Um, and is it's doing it in these big sweeping vistas of like the mountains and the, and the valleys and the, and there's a storm comes and there's this, this altar made of rocks and an angel basically in the form of an old man comes to visit him and renews, you know, and, and gives him hope and warns his, his friend, um, Isaiah Edwards is played by Victor French, not to come and look for him, even though Charles's wife is, um, very upset and wants him to come home and 
he's just out in the wilderness and you know and this is just some idle afternoon and and it really kind of inspired this whole podcast where i'm like you know this is a way in which we experience television you can just sort of be absent-mindedly farting around flipping the channels or you know just sort of or, or i guess in today's in the parlance of our times you know you're just sort of flipping around netflix or whatever and you find something that speaks to you in this sort of really deep and and peculiar way. And I'm just very curious to find out what your thoughts were about it as you watched it. I was really moved by it. I think that unavoidably there is some corniness to it, but much more than that, there's this sense of, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a Job story. We were talking earlier about how it mimics the beats of the the ordeals that God subjected his believers to in the Old Testament. It's a very, very biblical story. Charles has to go into the wilderness. He has to keep his faith in spite, not just of there being absolutely no sign that anything could possibly come of this, but everyone around him telling him very credibly and correctly that he is obsessing and like morbidly clinging to a a boy who's already dead. And then out of that, there's this moment of grace. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the young Pope. Yes, very much so. I'm so glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's this just bolt out of nothing. And, and on little house in the prairie, which steadfastly, for eight seasons had been about frontier living. Right. <laughs> yes. And you get this huge hit of supernatural goings on and, and it does what the young Pope does, which is let's take this person's faith as literally true. Yeah. What would that mean? You know, the, the young Pope wrestles with it over the course of two seasons with the new Pope, um, you know, in a way that little house doesn't really, but, really what you're kind of jammed up against in this episode is Charles's faith in his own faith versus that of the people around him. And he insists that like, of course God will help my son. Like that's what God does. Of course I believe in miracles. Miracles happen, you know, and these very kindly, very noble people that he's been surrounded with for however many seasons in the show are like, no, it really doesn't. You can't, it it doesn't work that way. And it's, you know, he insists that it does. And the way that the the story plays with that level of faith and this sort of um, expressionistic imagery that surrounds it is very similar to the way that the young Pope and the new Pope approach the possibility of miracles I was thinking specifically about the repeated presence on the young Pope and the new Pope of children and other innocents who are very upset by the workings of God. Mm -hmm. And here in little house on the prairie, Charles's young daughter, Sandra is, is just appalled by what to her is this ghoulish behavior from her, her really upstanding and kind and, and, wise father and it's it really is such an interesting wrinkle to the story of faith because his his faith is it hurts the people around him it's too much yes it's 
I, I found that very moving and very difficult to, it's difficult to wrestle with because when you think about the sort of the intended audience for Little House on the Prairie, you know, it, it's, it's probably relatively conservative Christian believers, right? Right. And they're being sort of, I mean, every viewer is sort of forced to confront that, that suddenly Charles's faith, which has been a signpost for him and for his family for all these years, is now driving him apart from his family. Yeah. And, you know, to put that in the voice of his daughter, as it does, you know, who, who begs to be sent away to live with Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the books upon which the show was based, because she cannot endure her father's delusion that his adopted son, James is going to get better because of God. Like it, it drives this little girl to like tears and, and genuine anguish. Right. It's that, that is going to be a formative moment in her life. There's no way it couldn't. Yeah. And how often do you see children in that kind of, intellectual and spiritual anguish on television. I don't think you do. Right. Just confronted by something that not only is so much bigger than their experience of the world, but which takes the parts of the world that to them are sources of safety and, and a sort of comforting infallibility, their parents. And it shows them to be not just imperfect, but frightening. Yeah. I, yeah. I felt like that was tremendously bold, especially given the time and the genre. 100%. Your parents and God sort of are a team when you're a kid, yeah. you know? Yeah. And to see them, uh, you know, and you, and, you, and you rely on both of them, and, and, and the one sort of stands in for the other. And to suddenly find yourself at odds with both of them, it's such a you know that would that would shake you to your very foundations as as a person even even as a kid and it shakes everyone around charles in the, in this episode it, it's it's hard to watch it really is yeah that's a it's a very challenging episode of television especially considering what it is on its face yeah i thought the parallels to the story of abraham and isaac gave it this kind of frightening immediacy, like this frizzle. He's building an altar. He's out in the middle of nowhere with this boy who's completely helpless. And at first it really seems like sort of a descent into madness. He's out here in the woods building Blair Witch shit. Yeah. And it, I think the episode plays with that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I think you he 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 grows this big obviously fake but big beard and he becomes sort of like a wild man of the woods in a way. Yeah. And it, it it really, you know, it alienates you from him as a protagonist. Yeah, it does. You're not really, I don't think, supposed to see him as a focal, focalizing character the way that you have been through the entire rest of the series, you know? 
Right, um, where he was around to make sense of things. Yeah, he's the one who's making things not make sense. And maybe you have some sort of vestigial belief in his power as a protagonist, such that if he believes a thing is going to happen, then you go along for it as the viewer. But I think it's it's much easier to relate to basically every single other person in the show. Because every other single person on the show is arrayed against him and this and sort of mad they're quest. They're grieving. They're very sympathetic. Yeah. And he's he is refusing to grieve. Right. Even that's as a, it, it obviously kind of eats him up from the inside. That's a really good way to put it, because part of the problem that he has with his family is that in a way they see his insistence that James will recover as cruel yeah. because it it's driving him apart from the rest of them when they need him the most, they need to be able to rely on his love and his strength and his, his, his ability to pull through this. And he's not there for them. He's there for his his son, who, you know, prior to them going out into the wilderness, he keeps talking about, like, oh, he seems better today. You know, he's he really is eating the the whatever the gruel that they're feeding him is. And, and, and the rest of the family just looks at each other like, no, he's not. Right, he's, he's the va- same every single day. Right. It has not changed. And he is hurting his family. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. He's hurting his family. It's very painful for all of them, and I think painful for the viewer, too, who's followed them for eight seasons or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up with those books. My mother read them to me when I was little. I read them to myself after I learned to read. To see this figure who loomed pretty large in my childhood, like if, if someone had mentioned a character named paw to me, I would immediately know who it was Mm -hmm. to see this kind of ambiguity around, around him was, was so striking. And I was really impressed by how much of all this is conveyed with visual language. In addition to just dialogue again, not a strong period for televised drama in terms of visual language uh at all so to suddenly like there's this i think pretty frankly incredible uh image that kind of closes the episode where charles's wife arrives at his sort of campsite and sees him standing next to this big stone pillar that he built and then James steps out from behind it and you're left with this sort of wide shot of her and him and James and his little cave that he lives in and this pillar thing. And it communicates so much without saying anything. And it doesn't give you the sort of like everyone runs into their, each other's arms and is happily ever after. Like, no, it's a moment of awe. Yeah, that's yes, exactly. Exactly. And and again, I, I think the obvious point of comparison, especially for us, is the young Pope and the new Pope, which are shows that trade in awe both as a cynical spectacle and as a genuine experience. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things in any piece of art is the ability to 
let the viewer or the reader experience a genuine emotion without any touch of irony. That's really powerful. And you always risk looking absurd. You risk being corny. Yeah. But that moment is so overpowering. And like you said, it's not quite, it's not quite recognizably human. They don't run to each other. It's just this incredible, miraculous thing that we're left to stare at as the show ends. And I guess it's, I should note here that I'm a huge sucker for any kind of um, visual narrative that just ends with two characters looking at each other from a distance. Oh, me too. I, I don't know what it is about that. Um, Chad Velcoro salute dot GIS. You know, uh, uh, th- there's something about that, you know, like characters looking at each other and seeing each other and understanding a thing about each other f- from a distance, but not bridging that distance. I find something really affecting about that um, in this sort of gulf that opens up between comprehension and communion is I guess how I would put it. Yeah, I know what you mean. And something that appeals to me about that is that it entails a lot of trust in the viewer. And I like to be trusted. Mm -hmm. I like to be left with a lot of, what at first blush looks like blank canvas. Yeah. This is, this is a very funny reference to pull from, but what always comes to mind when I think about things like this is the painting that Wilson Fisk, the Kingpin played by Vincent D'Onofrio buys and the, the adaptation of daredevil that was on Netflix for a while. Mm-hmm. Rabbit in a snowstorm, which is just different variations of white. And it's something that you can look at forever and not just project onto, but begin to understand on its own terms, because there is a coherent visual language happening in front of you. There are expressions happening. There is lighting, there's blocking. All of these things have meaning. And the moment where you as a viewer become able to decipher that meaning is at the heart of having a really rich relationship with art. Yeah. Because so much of how people interact with art as a rule is plot-based and dialogue-based. Yeah. And for a show in this era to rely instead on this sort of poetic visual language... I think it would be bold today. People have a hard time with it today. I mean, as we've spoken about over and over and over again, you know, it was, um, I think that the, the sort of symbolist television shows like Mad Men and the Sopranos, um, people wrestled with that and did not, you know, particularly with Mad Men. Enjoy the fight. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, particularly with Mad Men, they would say, oh, it's a little bit on the nose. And it's like, well, yes. Yes, it is. That's the idea. That is what happens when you are supposed to get something. And right. the symbol is actually a jumping off point for broader narrative forces. It's expecting you to be able to get things without a character then 
it's coming in and saying, well, here's what this means, right. you know, or two characters hashing it out through dialogue between themselves, which is almost certainly probably what I was reacting to so strongly when I first saw it, that the, the it almost felt anachronistic for a show to be working uh, so fluently with visual language and mystery and symbolism and uh, yeah w- without sort of driving it home in a way that made it like i mean obviously it's clear that you know he's going to be right at a certain point you know that god is going to help his son i guess but like right. it's so strange the way it all plays out before then and it is a li- it is a little bit like you know I referenced Red Dead Redemption two earlier because the first part of the episode of the two parter was you know this sort of like he he forms a mini posse to go find the bandits who shot his son, but it is a bit like if in the middle of Red Dead Redemption two, you know one of the gang members was resurrected from the dead. Yeah, and also, everything else was the that- same, but that was that was there, and it would be like, well, that's odd. Right. It's 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 taking something that is so prosaic and taking a massive risk with it. Yeah. Also, I think that, you know, you said earlier the first part of this episode plays like a Red Dead Redemption mission. I think more accurately it would be that Red Dead Redemption is actually a little house on the prairie simulator. Fair. Fair. Totally fair. Yeah, there's and there's there's never a moment, even when it it becomes clear that sort of the narrative the narrative scales are tipping. There's never a moment where they sit down and spell out why. It relies on this sort of visual poetry, like the the old man, the angel. The first time we see him, he disappears behind the pillar in the exact same way and with the, a very similar framing technique to the way that James appears at the end. Yeah. And this is like, there's no need to explain something like that. You don't right. need to tell us that like divinity is at work. And also I, I think right at the moment that it could have been corniest, there is this, note of terrible threat when the angel asks him and if your son isn't healed will you lose your faith and there's this sense like what does what does god want from him here Mm -hmm. he could get this question wrong and lose his son (sighs) yeah because it is a difficult i'm sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna say i i thought the the actor who played the angel whose name escapes me right now did a really incredible job selling his switch from from affable old man to a mouthpiece of creation. Uh, the actor's name is Don Beto, B-E-D-D-O-E, for what it's worth. Gotcha. Um, but yes, and it's like, because here's the thing about all this. Does this happen all the time in this world? Like, is there something so unique about Charles Ingalls that his specific faith and his specific love for his specific son makes this possible or is this something available to any believer and i don't think the show answers it i think it leaves that an open question and 
it's so strange because like on the one hand you could see it like glurge, right? You could see it like, Oh, well it's, you know, if you know, anything is possible with God or whatever. And it's like, well, that's in fact, not the case. Um, you know, as any family was, as every single family discovers when someone in their family dies of an illness, like it is in fact, not possible that God will save the lives of every single believer or, every single child or sibling or mother right. or and father fact, of a believer. They talk in the course of this episode about the family's loss of young Charles, Charles's namesake and how they struggled to move on after. Mm-hmm. So th- clearly there's, there's no contention that, that God will never visit hardship on the people who believe in him. Right. All the characters who are trying to, bring Charles back to his home and wean him away from this sort of obsession with James's restoration of health. Like they're not being non-believers. They're not being faithless. They're just like, this is not how this works. And I, I, I think that the show is kind of laying down this weird challenge to the viewer in a way, you know, because None of the viewing audience is going to have, you know, is going to build an altar of stone in the wilderness and have some mysterious old man appear and disappear and save the life of their son. But it's still the show and Michael Landon, who stars in it and wrote it and directed it, still sees some kind of value in the story of having this happen at the tail end of this whole, like, you know, this arc of his character for the better part of a decade. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's rich in a way. And like, um, not to keep going back to Red Dead Redemption 2 of all things, but like (laughs) the thing I think that it reminded me the most of, and I saw the episode before I played Red Red Dead Redemption 2, but there's the sequence where, your character is riding through the wilderness for a long time. It's a cutscene that's set to a song by D'Angelo, the R and B and soul singer genius, uh, and Daniel Lenoir called Unshaken. And it it really functions to do nothing but to to leave you immersed in this world as this character who is in extremis journeys from one part of it to the next for whatever. I don't even remember the specific reason he was going anywhere, but it's this haunting minor key song by a major figure in like the last 20, 30 years of American music. Yeah. And it lets the scenery and the imagery and the poetry of the, of the, of the sound do the talking for it. And again, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of a man bites dog story. Like that first show from this, like really benighted era in television drama could do this. Like I'm so impressed by it. Yeah. It's something very special. Yeah. Michael, Michael Landon's really interesting guy. Yes, very much so. I mean, just in researching this episode, I found out so much about him that I didn't know. Um, I think I recalled that he had died relatively young. Yeah. Um, I didn't remember why he had pancreatic cancer, which um, fucking sucks. And uh, but he was like a, a, a drinker and a smoker, and he and interestingly, he was Jewish. 
which really mm-hmm. does dovetail with the the Old Testament vibe of this story. Not right. That, not that your cultural extraction is like prescriptive about the kind of fiction you're going to write, but no, not at all. But I mean, you know, it it's so here. It would be so easy to see all this as you know this sort of like Reaganite moral majority, you know, era kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I suppose in a way it was. I suppose in a way that was the audience that made it possible. But that was not him, right? And, and I don't think that's what this is at its at its heart. I don't think right. it's what he was putting into it or hoping people would take away from it, because. Like we said earlier, it's not it's not a toothless story. He he causes real pain in pursuit of this impossible thing, and he suffers real pain himself. And it's it's essentially a, a story of divine whim, which is not wholly comforting. No, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you know, like if you're, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the the ultimate moral, if there is one to take away from this, is that God is listening and sometimes he'll tell you what to do. And sometimes if you do it and if you have the right beliefs about what may or may not happen after you do it, he'll do you a favor. Which right. is completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, but first you have to scar and terrorize your family. It reminds me of two things. Um, it reminds me of Blasphemous Rumors by Depeche Mode. Yeah. I don't want to start any Blasphemous Rumors, but I think that God has a sick sense of humor, which is a fucking great line that I've... Yeah. Yeah, ever since when I was a young Catholic boy and like my cooler uh, atheistic friends first exposed me to that, I was super pissed off about it, right? You know, but like, it's like I don't know how you can look at any biblical story almost all of which are about testing people who like are true believers who are fucking trying to do the right thing by this insane alien entity who's like presiding over their lives and not think of that line and then also i just wrapped covering the show raised by wolves uh aaron guzikowski's post-apocalyptic science fiction thing fuck what a show right i'm I, I haven't done the second season yet but the, the first se- season really blew me away yeah i i think you'll like the second season um i i will say that it continuously ups the ante uh <laughs> in a very very impressive way and like i i think that you're dealing with sort of the same idea about like you know, in Raised by Wolves, there's sort of an open question, like, what is God? Like, what is the nature of God? Is there actually a God in the sense that you and I, when we use that word, uh, mean? Or is there simply some, like, an, an, an alien intelligence sufficiently advanced and that we don't understand it and can only te- contextualize it as a deity? And this, of course, is an old thing in science fiction, you know, like science and magic at a certain point are like indistinguishable from one another based on our own point of reference. It's old hat, but it's impressive to see it worked on um, and sort of hammered out with big, bold imagery, which is which is super duper raised by wolves stock and trade. Big, huge, striking, sometimes disgusting sometimes terrifying images 
to, to hammer out this old debate and this old issue. And that I think is really what grabbed me when I first saw this episode flipping through those channels is just like, he's taking a wagon through the wilderness and there's a stone pillar and there's an old man and there's a, his friend with a beard and there's a dark stormy night and there's, and, and, and it just felt so very imagistic. Yes. Yes. And I'm making like weird clawing, grasping gestures with my hands. I'm trying to like wrap my mind around it. You know, I think also so much of the episode physically emphasizes Charles's smallness. Mm. There are these huge sweeping shots of him diminishing into, into the wilderness that really reminded me of the terror of, you know, the scenes of them trying to dig the ships out of the ice. And I guess really the episode is not about faith in the conventional Christian sense as we understand it. It's about submission to God. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, I think. Which is a much more frightening proposition. Because he's submitting in a way that the rest of the people around him think is insane. And and It's literally insane. Yeah. It is insane. Yeah. And the episode sort of rewards his insanity. But with an edge. It's not a comforting. That's what I don't find it comforting. And I, I, and I don't know. I mean, I guess we, one would have to go back and consult the viewers of little house on the prairie, but like, I think it's tough to find this episode comforting. I'm sure that the right idiot could do it. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. But yes, I, I understand what you mean. I think that, there's a lot baked into it to make it implicit that this is not not the kind of miracle that Protestants talk about. Right. Yeah, because like in general, I'm sorry, what are you saying? Oh, I was going to say it's not a bloodless miracle. They He even reads a tract of the Old Testament about burnt offerings. Yeah. And like in general, are you going to forsake your family and, and, and drive them away from yourself and ride out into the wilderness and build this pillar of stone and and sit there and waiting with your fucking comatose child? Probably not. Probably very few people who are in the viewing audience were going to do anything like that. Right. And I don't think it's a call to do it either. No, I don't think so either. I, I think it's it's a true biblical story in that it's moral is mysterious and opaque. Yeah. Submission again. Yeah. Submission. Submission. It's, it's a story about the unknown. Which is a frightening thing. And I don't care like how many crosses you, you slap atop your pillar made of stone. The unknown is still frightening. It's very frightening. This was really cool to talk about. I'm surprised how sort of naturally it came because this is uh, this is pretty far outside of my wheelhouse. Yeah, mine too, for sure. You know, we've we've really only talked about the the golden age of television so far. I was glad to do. I mean, like I said, it was really when when I, when I first had the idea of doing a podcast about television. 
it, it was one of the things that came to mind. Um, you know, as I said, because it, 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 it uh, what am I looking for? It was just something that kind of fell uh, into my lap when I wasn't looking for it. And that I got a ton out of, and I, I hope, you know, I should say, and perhaps I probably should have said this at the beginning of the episode, I'll put it in the notes, but this episode you can find if, if you Google it, if you Google little house on the prairie, he was only 12 and do a video search. It's on daily motion. You can watch it in a more legit fashion on Amazon prime. So it is out there to watch. And I, I, I would, I actually recommend it. Yeah. And I, and I recommend, you know, watching the two episodes back to back. It's kind of an interesting contrast and you get the whole story that way. And, you know, it, it's fun watching their little side quest at first. And then it's fun watching Michael Landon lose his fucking mind. You know, what's and, so interesting is that these are the two models of the biblical patriarch at work. First, he is avenging his family and he's shown ultimately to be impotent in this quest. He, you know, finds the guys and roughs them up, but he can't bring himself to kill them. And there's really mm-hmm. nothing else to be done. He can't unfire the gun. And so then this, this Titanic break from his life and his role. Yeah, that's a good point. You do kind of need to see them together in that, in that respect, because the, the, the mission of justice or vengeance or whatever you want to call it, like doesn't get him anywhere. It stops the guys, I suppose, from doing it again, but it, it doesn't heal his son, you know. And people are pretty honest with him about it when he has this idea to go out and form a posse or whatever, and it leaves him in the situation where, like, he's this broken shell of a man trying to heal a child who cannot be healed. And it makes it look like, you know, riding into the wilderness is the only option that he has left, you know, to his family's horror and, and, and sadness and grief and sorrow. Yeah. It's really, it's like, uh, it's very impressive work. I think I really do. Yeah. It's, it's the aesthetics of it takes some adjustment, but I think it's very much worth spending the time. Yeah, I would agree. What do you think? Should we wrap it up here? Good place to end it, I think. Yep. All right. This has been Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. I'm Gretchen Falker Martin. I'm Shanti Collins. And you can follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever your fine podcasts are hosted. We'd love to hear from you in reviews. We would love for you to spread the word about what we're doing here. And until next time, I hope you watch something interesting. Bye-bye, everybody.